turn in our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. And uh, it's very interesting as you uh, look at the way others develop uh, their series in Jeremiah, a number of them preach one sermon on all of Jeremiah 2. And I couldn't bring myself to do that. There are many interesting texts here. Uh, so uh, we're going to look only at the first nine verses, but because we're starting the second chapter, we'll read uh, all of it uh, together. Now, this is the word of our God, Jeremiah chapter 2. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain. Neither said they, Where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, that led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? And I brought you into a plentiful country to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof, but when ye entered, ye defiled my land, and made mine heritage an abomination. The priests said not, Where is the Lord? And they that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. Wherefore, I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead. For I pass over the isles of Shittim, and see and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be ye very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste. His cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Noph and Tehapanes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way? And now what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt, to drink the waters of Sihor? Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria, to drink the waters of the river? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backslidings shall reprove thee. 
Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord God of hosts. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands, and thou saidst, I will not transgress. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, wholly a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? For though thou wash thee with nitre, and take thee much soap, yet thine iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. How canst thou say, I am not polluted, I have not gone after Balaam? See thy way in the valley, know what thou hast done. Thou art a swift dromedary, traversing her ways. A wild ass used to the wilderness that snuffeth up the wind at her pleasure in her occasion who can turn her away. All they that seek her will not weary themselves. In her month they shall find her. Withhold thy foot from being unshod and thy throat from thirst. But thou saidst, there is no hope. No, for I have loved strangers and after them will I go. As the thief is ashamed when he is found, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They, their kings, their princes, and their priests, and their prophets, saying to a stock, Thou art my father, and to a stone, Thou hast brought me forth. For they have turned their back unto me, and not their face. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, Arise and save us. But where are thy gods that thou hast made thee? Let them arise, if they can save thee in the time of thy trouble. For according to the number of thy cities are thy gods, O Judah. Wherefore will ye plead with me? Ye all have transgressed against me, saith the Lord. In vain have I smitten your children. They received no correction. Your own sword hath devoured your prophets like a destroying lion. O generation, see ye the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness unto Israel, a land of darkness? Wherefore say, my people, we are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Can a maid forget her ornaments, or her, a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Why trimmest thou thy way to seek love? Therefore hast thou also taught the wicked ones thy ways. Also in thy skirts is found the blood of the souls of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but upon all these. Yet thou sayest, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall turn from me. Behold, I will plead with thee, because thou sayest, I have not sinned. Why gaddest thou about so much to change thy way? Thou also shalt be ashamed of Egypt, as thou wast ashamed of Assyria. Yea, thou shalt go forth from him, and thine hands upon thine head. For the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come before thee, having read these very somber words. We know, O Lord, that we have not followed thee as we ought. 
We pray this night that through the preaching of thy word, we may be kept from the evil sins of Judah of old. O Lord, preserve us, keep us, make us to take heed to the warnings of thy word and to take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ alone this night. We pray that he may be sweet unto us, that he may be so joyful to our hearts that we would despise every evil way and flee from sin and idolatry. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Beloved congregation, it's an incredible thing when someone loves you. It's even more incredible when you understand that God loves you. And how much more when God remembers that you love him. Very incredible. We're not very good at loving God. And yet God here remembers the love of Israel. And the love that that he has placed in their hearts. He has given them that love. um, But he he loves when that love uh, returns to him again. Um, My wife found a sign that one of her friends from Tennessee uh, had made. Uh, The sign says, Jesus knows me, this I love. It's a good thought, isn't it? Jesus knows me, this I love. So I want to take you through the first nine verses of Jeremiah 2 this evening. In the way of answering questions that God asks of Israel. He asks, first of all, who do you love? And he talks about true love here. Most of us remember... Uh, our first love. Uh, we were probably very young and uh, enamored with the idea of somebody of the opposite sex, different than us in many curious ways. And uh, it was intriguing. It was a, a time of discovering somebody who wasn't like us. We didn't know always what to do with that. We had uh, that uh, uncle or neighbor who would ask us when we were just little, who's your girlfriend? Who's your boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? And we'd be all embarrassed. And, well, I can't say. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to say out loud. But uh, it was it was a joyful time. It's very sad as I was thinking through these things this week. How how our young people today are taught to despise these things. That even as they discover them, they're taught to to put those feelings aside or to ignore them in some way. It's a very great time of great confusion for even our very little children in in elementary school, very sad. But eventually we developed from this infatuation, uh, spending time with him, we found a certain individual who uh, took more and more of our time, gained more and more of our interest And eventually, by oaths and promises, we joined ourselves together and became married. And it was a very, very delightful time. Love is a wonderful thing. It's also very, very challenging and uh, has its uh, difficult times, but love perseveres through them. It's a joyful thing uh, to uh, experience that. 
And here, through Jeremiah, God actually remembers the good things, the way in which Israel loved him. Uh, and when we look back at the history of Israel, even as they came out of the land of Egypt and were redeemed there, we very often think of their grumbling and their murmuring and their complaining. But God doesn't do that. He says, I remember that you loved me once, the kind way you treated me. Uh, go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth. And the word kindness there is the word that we looked at last week, that um, curious word, uh, hesed, uh, Hebrew word hesed, which means uh, grace or faithfulness, or love, or mercy. It has very many different um, translations, and rightly so, because translation should always uh, reflect something of the context. So here it's uh, translated kindness. I remember the kindness of thy youth. I remember you as a young bride. The, the love of thine espousals when, they, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. We can recall the words of Hosea about 100, 120 years earlier as the prophet to Israel when he said similar words to Israel that God having been betrothed, the picture was there, we're married, and you've gone running after other gods. And God, in a very emotional um, way, illustrates the foolishness and the wickedness of their spiritual adultery. So you've gone after other gods, and... You've received oil, you've received uh, vineyards, you've received all these good things, and you thanked those gods, you thanked the Baals for what I gave you, God says. And you can see how God elicits our own emotions. How foolish, how wicked would that be if I poured out all my love on someone and they give somebody else thanks? and attributed all to some, not even somebody, something else. So uh, the Lord uh, uh, sends Hosea to, uh, to confront them with these things. Uh, Isaiah has similar sentiments in Isaiah 62, verse 5, as a, a here's the more positive side, as a bridegroom rejoiceth over a bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. So uh, the Lord uses this imagery very much. So here's God rejoicing over his people. And when we look at ourselves, we might say we're no prize. But when God sees his church, what does he see, beloved? What does God see when he looks at, 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 at his church? And I tried not to give away the answer, but it's hard. He sees Christ, doesn't he? Because it's Christ's church. And he doesn't see you and me so much as he sees Christ. Christ sees 
a body that he has purchased with his blood. They're dear to him. They're precious to him. When God sent his son to die for the sins of his people, uh, the Lord puts it in in emotional ways. Uh, He took his son, his only son, whom he loved, and he sent him to die to suffer his punishment for their sins. Um, Very, very emotional to us as we consider what happened in those terms. The Lord says, you lovingly followed me even into the wilderness. When thou wentest after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown, we were in the desert, and you just, you came after me. And the Lord, again, the Lord doesn't remember all of their frustrations and all of their complaining. He's bringing out the very best in them. I led you into the desert, and you went. You came with me. I led there, and you followed. And it's as if God is impressed uh, with these people. It's very, very remarkable. He uh, remembers that they are his people. And that's one thing that love does. Love remembers the good times. That's very important to to lay hold of as well. Uh, if 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 you have a marriage where people are thinking always of how they've been wronged or how things went bad or how we made bad decisions. And uh, you can't change those, but they can go over and over in your mind and they can really destroy a marriage. So to remember those good times, that's what God is doing here in a way. It's not that he's ignorant of those things, clearly, but he says, not only did I love you, you loved me at one time. And I remember that you loved me. You are a holy people. Israel was holiness unto the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, verse 3, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. I loved you. Everybody that came against you, I attacked. I made sure that you were defended. You are a protected people. If you turn over to Jeremiah uh, chapter 12 and verse 15, He says, and it shall come to pass after that I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them and will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. So those that come against you, uh, I'm going to permit that, but I'm going to retrieve you from that uh, as well. We turn back to Psalm 105. We looked at this just uh, a few weeks ago, Psalm 105, a beautiful expression of God's love. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 105, verse 14. He suffered no man to do them wrong, yea, he reproved kings for their sake, saying, touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Uh, verse uh, 25. He says, he turned their heart to hate his people, to deal subtly with his servants, He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They showed his signs among them and wonders in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made it dark. They rebelled not against his word. He turned their waters into blood and slew their fish. So he recounts all that the Lord did in Israel. I brought you into the land of Egypt. Sorry, Egypt. He had brought you into the land of Egypt, and I protected you from all of the evil that Pharaoh designed against you. 
I stood up for you and I came to your rescue and I did rescue you. God says, do you remember? Do you remember how you loved me? Do you remember the wonderful relationship we had? Do you remember how close we were together? And then in verses four and five, it's very interesting. He says, did I do something wrong that you would leave me? Come and tell me if uh, I've, I've made a mistake here somewhere. Of course, God does not make mistakes, but he's really coming down to our level. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? In marriage, human marriage, there's always sin on both parties. Um, and I re remember the, the book that I have for uh, marriage counseling called When Sinners Say I Do. Is that very title puts everything into perspective, right? When sinners say, I do. So often we expect everyone, uh, our husband, our wife, whatever, to be perfect and to uh, fit in with our, with the little image that we've created in our own minds. But here God says, what did I do wrong? Yeah, that very question is very convicting, right? You're God, of course you didn't do anything wrong but he's speaking to people as if they don't grasp that. He goes on for this whole chapter to develop and convince them that they have done everything wrong and he has not. Ligon Duncan said, people don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. It's a good statement. It's a good thing to remember. People don't fall out of love and we say, Say that, that's why people get divorced. People don't fall out of love, they fall out of forgiveness. Just a reminder that the commands regarding marriage that are found in Ephesians 5 are that husbands are to love their wives. And goes on to explain how that works as Christ loved the church. Wives are to submit themselves to their own husbands. And the husband can't say, I would love my wife more if only she was more submissive. It's not qualified, is it? He doesn't say, husbands love your wives if they, if they do their job, if they submit to your satisfaction. And wives can say, well, I would submit more to my husband if he really loved me, if he really showed more that he loved me. Uh, I'd, it'd be much easier to submit. Which is true, but those commands are irrespective of each other. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your own husbands. And when you do that, you're gonna find that your marriage is, is going to uh, be blessed of the Lord. Uh, it doesn't mean there's not gonna be conflict, there's not gonna be challenges, or uh, you know, doing things in order to expect certain results. But with God, there's no sin. He hasn't done anything wrong. What sin, he says, have I committed to cause them to leave? In our little congregation, we have been 
I don't know what the verb is to use there, but we have experienced the presence of a number of men who have had their wives leave them. It's very, very difficult. And to a man, not one of them said, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, I'm blameless. And uh, I just wasn't uh, respected enough. They all recognized I could have done more to save my marriage. At the same time, in each of those situations, there's no reason to think that those women had biblical grounds to leave their husbands. Their departure was sin. So there's going to be sin on both sides, but at some point you can say, is this a biblical divorce or is it just one that's sanctioned by, by the government, by society? We have ways of determining that. So I think whether you're married or not, you may know the difficulty of working hard to love someone and not having that love returned. Shows maybe a little bit of manipulation. We, we sometimes want to express love to someone in order to get something back. But that's not what love is. That's not, not what biblical love is, right? Loving somebody without expecting anything in return. That's very, very difficult. To just say, I've done all this stuff and I'm just going to leave the results with the Lord. I'm going to turn, move on and love someone else in a Christian way. Uh, we, we just naturally expect something in return. And here the Lord has poured out lavishly his love upon Israel and received nothing in return. Now remember that God does not need your love. God isn't, doesn't have some uh, empty spot in his heart where we jump in and, and fill that vacuum in his emotional life. And uh, we're going to see here in the coming months as we continue to go through our confession that God, in fact, doesn't have any emotions. He expresses emotions that he has. But we return to the doctrine of the simplicity of God. God has no emotions. He's just, he is uh, just and righteous and holy and loving and merciful and compassionate at the same time. None of those changes. Now, we have a hard time understanding that because we are, our emotions change all the time, right? We get fed up and then we get angry. And we feel badly that we've yelled or something, then we've calmed down a little bit. And God doesn't do that. We go like this, right? Emotionally. And God doesn't do that. He's always, all of his attributes, all of his emotions, equally at all times. So God doesn't need us to love him. But it is right and proper for him to expect us to love him. It's right for us to love him. It's the right response to our salvation, to be grateful. It's the first sign of the decline of the heathen in Romans chapter 1. They cease to be thankful, and after that it's all downhill. Number one, they stop being thankful. And they stop being thankful to God. 
So gratitude is of the essence of the Christian life. In Isaiah 5, verse 4, the Lord says similarly, What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. So I, I did everything. Tell me again, he says through Isaiah, tell me what I've done wrong. Tell me if I didn't do enough to love you. And here he comes years later to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, and says, did I do something wrong? Have I done anything wrong that you should complain against me? Well, the Lord says in verses 6 through 8, here's what you did wrong. Actually, I haven't done anything wrong. I've loved you with an everlasting love. But here's what you did wrong. And he begins this process that's going to be developed through this chapter. We're going to hear some hard accusations. It's going to be very difficult for us to really openly, honestly examine ourselves in the light of uh, God's uh, word, in the light of God's questions. First of all, he says, you're not asking the right questions. In verse 6, Neither said they, where is the Lord that brought us up out of the land of Egypt that led us through the wilderness? So where, where is God? Did they remember everything that God had done? What's the reason, beloved, that we so easily slip into sin? Isn't it because we forgot that the smallest of sin we sometimes think some sins are insignificant, right? We talk about white lies as if, as if there's actually such a thing as degrees of lies. When God says all liars shall find their place in the lake of fire, that was just a little lie. God surely is going to overlook that. But do you think that little lie, in your estimation, my estimation, is just a little lie? Would Jesus have died for that sin, for that lie? In fact, he did die. He did die for that lie. And we should despise that lie for that very reason. I'm about to tell a lie. And Jesus died for it. He laid down his life. He suffered humiliation. He suffered the wrath of God. And I'm just going to take this lightly to try to preserve my reputation, or to try to save face, I'm going to tell a lie. How easily we fall into that way of thinking. Where is the Lord that brought us out of Egypt? The Lord that brought us out of, out of disaster, led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt. Here's the Lord that's brought us out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. And we, we forget. Isn't that the reason we sin? We forget that God has been good to us. That God is our Savior. Uh, it's not just a title that he has. It's a work that he's done. He saved our souls, delivered us from the wrath of God. The Lord that brought us into a plentiful country, verse 7, to eat the fruit thereof and the goodness thereof. And you remembered when, when he said, I'm going to give you vineyards that you haven't planted. You're going to reap the goodness of a land that you didn't develop, but I'm going to give it to you. You're going to go in and possess it, and you're going to dwell in a land of milk and honey. 
It's a beautiful description of the promised land. I'm going to give you good, good things. And yet, when ye entered at the end of verse 7, ye defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. So they ruined what God had given them. We see the glories of Joshua coming in to take the land, all of the victory that's there, um, some defeat, but largely victory. They're possessing the land, they're going in, they're united, but they didn't clear out all of the Canaanites. They didn't clear out all of the people there. And the next book, what's the next book after Joshua is Judges. Judges that we're coming up to in our, in our Bible reading schedule and that is not very pleasant to read, but it just has that downward spiral, downward, 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 and they keep going around and around and they sin and then they supplicate God and he sends a savior, a judge, and then they are, have deliverance for a while, they have peace for a while, and then they fall into their sins and they stay there sometimes for 40 years, 40 years. And they live under the oppression of the Midianites or whoever it is that comes against them. And it's, it's an awful picture, but it's a picture that reminds us that God is faithful to his covenant people. Jeremiah says here that there's a leadership problem. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Verse 8. The lawyers did not know him. They that handled the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. So here are pastors who don't even know the Lord. It's a terrible thing to have an unconverted ministry. People who are not familiar with the word of God won't declare the word of God, won't call sinners to repentance. Um, who ignore what God has commanded them to do in the favor of peace and prosperity, the favor of preaching uh, a gospel that tickles men's ears and makes things pleasant so that people come to church for entertainment. And that's and when they don't, they're not entertained enough, they'll try another church where they'll well, there, maybe they'll be better entertained there. I've been reading again of the foolishness at Bethel Church in Reading. The, the church at Reading is just, uh, I think, maybe a couple, three hours from our church in Weed, California. Um, and they've got, at their meetings, I don't know if you heard about this, they've got angel feathers coming, dropping down from uh, the, the ceiling on their meeting, angel feathers. Uh, and everybody thinks this is a wonderful thing. Uh, I notice where uh, Justin Peters said, if you can prove to me that those are angel feathers, I'll shut down my ministry forever. Um, it's so much foolishness, but that building is full. It's full of people that say, show us these wonderful things. They, they haven't read their Bibles. They don't know, they don't understand. The prophet said, my people perish for lack of knowledge. And they're willing to take those things, just like the people of Israel that had the treasures of knowing a holy God, and they just turned their back on that and said, what about Baal? He's very interesting. 
Maybe he'll give us what we need. Maybe these other gods uh, will help us because we're not really that impressed with our God. How could you not be impressed with a holy God? How could you not be impressed with the God of heaven? Because sin gets in the way. We take our eyes off of who he is. More and more, we, 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 we just uh, have people everywhere that are not interested in God, in who he is, in his honor and his glory. We find it difficult often to stop talking about the things of this life and really talk about who God is and discover uh, who he is, his attributes and his designs and his work amongst sinners and his work of, of blessing his church. Um, these are often very foreign to us. Well, that's kind of airy-fairy out there somewhere, but it's the very essence of what the Christian loves. This is my God. When I was a sinner, miserable, he redeemed me. He took me off of that miry clay. He pulled me out and he set me upon a rock, the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I had terrible footing like I was in quicksand and now I'm standing upon a solid rock. And it feels great. It feels great to be on a firm foundation that I know will never move. I may move, but that foundation is secure and solid. So all of these things are unprofitable, and the Lord says, why is there this problem in your leadership? Your leadership, are the one, they're the ones that should be guiding you into these things. And what a description that is of the church of today. When Christians think that God hasn't done enough for them. And that's seen in the the health and wealth prosperity gospel. It's never enough. We live in one of the richest nations in all of the world, and we still think God doesn't treat us very well, that he should treat us better. He should do things differently, as if we should tell God what to do. It's so easy for us to seek other gods and to follow the worldly ways. A lot of the, the church growth models are built on patterns uh, uh, business models that are patterned after, uh, I was going to say Xerox, that kind of dates me, but uh, IBM from way back or Microsoft. Well, what they do is successful. You know, my, my brother actually showed me a business card. You know that Microsoft used to, at least, I don't know if they still do, they had a department of evangelism. They actually called it evangelism. So they're using our words for their business model. Uh, it's, it's really, really quite something. Uh, the whole idea of outreach has become a secular word, right? It used to be a, a word that we use in the church, is outreach, reaching others for Christ. And uh, now uh, you see uh, the city of Edmonton having, having a work of outreach. This is our outreach. Uh, and it's confusing in a way for Christians. What are you doing using these words? That's not necessarily a Bible word, but it's a word that traditionally Christians have been using. So easy for the church to drift in those because we're so enamored with this idea of success, of visible success, not the faithfulness that Jeremiah says and, and proclaims, and God says, this is going to be hard work for you, Jeremiah. It's not going to be easy. They're not going to like what you say, but you need to say it anyway. And so many pastors say, well, let's be successful. 
let's, uh, I remember uh, 30 some years ago when I first came here, I got a number of mail. I don't get them so much uh, anymore, but I used to get these mailings that would guarantee that they would get X number of people into this building. It's all, it's all statistics, right? It's all methodology. But what's the problem with that, by the way? The problem with that is if you're going to use that to get people into your building, you need to use those same methods to keep them there. So you've already compromised all of that. Now you're going to use worldly methods to keep them in. You're going to compromise the gospel. Please don't go. Um, rather than say you need to hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord will rebuke you and me, beloved, for our sin, but he will bring us the grace of God in Christ for our repentance. He'll reward us richly for turning away, turning our backs on the world and the world's way and embracing the Lord Jesus Christ. Immorality creeps into the church where now we're talking about whether whether Christians should go to a transgender wedding or homosexual wedding. Uh, is, that, uh, is that something, like why are we even talking about that? It should be plain, but these are questions that now are, we're uncertain about how to exercise the love of God. We can, do, we can respond to that with great love and great compassion. Well, we have found already that we don't, we're not uh, responded to in kind. So then in verse 9, the Lord says, I do have grounds for divorce. That's very jarring to us. A God who hates divorce, he says in Malachi, I hate putting away. And here, and notice that Phil Riken uh, entitled his sermon on this chapter, God Files for Divorce. Um, and that's, that's kind of true here. Um, he doesn't get a divorce, but he presents grounds for divorce. So one of the great doctrines that we love is God's covenant faithfulness. God, we are, we are covenant, covenantly faithless. We are disobedient, but God has promised that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Um, your sin can't separate you from me. Not that you're to go on in sin, but I will redeem you. I will restore. I will bring you back again like he so lovingly does in the book of Hosea. I don't want you to be there, but your ways need to be addressed. So verse 9, he says, Wherefore I will yet plead with you. And the word there is a word that is used for a court of law in the Old Testament. Uh, in other places, uh, we won't go there tonight, but if you want to write down Hosea 4, 1 to 4, Micah 6, 1 to 2, he says, I have a controversy with you. And that's the same word here. And uh, we're going to take this up as a matter of law. And uh, we're going to, I'm, I'm pressing a lawsuit. That's the kind of language that's used here. So even though the Lord really doesn't file for divorce, I don't think he has, he's saying I have grounds for divorce. As far as your relationship with me, you have been unfaithful. I do have grounds. And of course he's going to say I love you. But I don't love your sin. I don't love the way you, you're acting towards me. In fact, he says here, if you don't want my love, you will receive my law. 
I've gone out of my way to be loving and compassionate and merciful and forgiving. And you've spit on all of that. You've despised what I've done. All the good things. If you don't want my grace, we'll go back to the law. And beloved, that's the way the law works, isn't it? It's the law that reminds us that we're sinners. And God lays those things out here. If you think that there's something wrong in the way that I've treated you, God says, then you're the problem. I'm not the problem. So God will never divorce Judah, but he's going to make his case. So beloved, as we consider these things, and these are hard things, remember that this is the word of God. This is God speaking to you and me through the prophet Jeremiah. He's addressing his church, the church of the Old Testament. And here we are, the church of the New Testament, the same God. I'm the Lord thy God, I change not. Therefore are ye sons of Jacob not consumed. Beloved, don't put yourself in that position where God deals with you legally instead of graciously. Where God says, in effect, I'm, I'm fed up with you. And he does that through Hosea. He does that in many ways. In the remaining chapter, uh, uh, verses of chapter 2, we're going to see all of the complaints that the Lord has. They're, they're just complaints. They're valid complaints. They're going to be hard to go through. They're going to be hard to, to uh, go through slowly. I'm not sure just how slowly we're going to go, but we'll take a few weeks here in Jeremiah chapter 2. Don't despise the grace of God, beloved. As, he, as you see him exercise that grace and forgive your sin freely, and he does forgive freely, love him the more, adore him, bend the knee towards him, sing his praises. Isn't it a delightful thing when you've sinned against the Lord and you're broken before him? And you lay your sin before him and you really don't think that he should forgive you because your sin against him is so great. You confess your sin before him. You claim the blood of Christ and he does forgive you. And what can you do but erupt in joy? God, I have fellowship with God again. I have peace with God. Everything is good. My Savior has made it possible to have communion with God. And we love the Lord Jesus Christ more. We love God the more. And we love the power of the Holy Spirit that makes all of that possible. So beloved, let us walk in the light of God's word, not despising his kindness, his goodness that leads us to repentance, to walk in the light of the gospel. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we see ourselves as we have read the words of Jeremiah to the kings and priests and prophets of Judah. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou wouldst deliver us from a casual observance of thy word. Lord, we come unto thee as a holy people. We want to be holy as thou art holy. Wilt thou forgive us our sin? Wilt thou make us to love and appreciate thy word as we learn more and more of thee, the true and the living God, thy mercy, thy grace, thy loving kindness. 
Lord, we pray that these things would be impressed upon our hearts even as we depart from this place and think upon them more. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.